So as the time turns 7.41, we return to the latest world oil situation now. After the 15 OPEC member states plus allies, including Russia and Kazakhstan, decided to cut crude oil production by 1.2 million barrels a day for six months from January. It flies in the face of US President Donald Trump's hopes to keep supply high and prices low. Just under a week ago, he tweeted, hopefully OPEC will be keeping oil flows as is, not restricted. The world does not want to see or need higher oil prices, he wrote. And we've seen analysts wondering what that means, uh, the fact that OPEC have gone ahead with this move anyway for the US relationship with Saudi Arabia, for example. Uh, The impact will also be felt globally as OPEC accounts for one-third of global oil production. Let's bring in first Dr. Manosher Takin, London-based independent global oil and energy consultant, who previously worked at OPEC's secretariat in Vienna, the executive organ of this oil cartel. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Let's talk a bit about the membership change within OPEC to better understand the cartel's movements with Qatar quitting. Not a major surprise, but can you, for those of us who are not really following oil developments that closely, explain what's going on there? Well, let me just very quickly say that OPEC is not a cartel. The term cartel, everyone uses. Cartel is a group of commercial companies who uh, used to do the seven sisters in the oil industry and in other businesses. No, OPEC is a group of states, and they are developing countries, and they are trying to protect the revenue from their only or the major resource, which is the commodity export oil. Now, as to the expectation or the why or how Qatar leaving, to me, is a surprise. and uh, It was a surprise, and it still is a surprise. And I, I, did, I didn't think they would uh, leave OPEC, and I still don't know why they left OPEC. Well, the suggestion has been that Qatar is at odds with Saudi Arabia and is siding with Iran uh, and and shares its primary natural gas field with Iran. Again, you probably know more about it than I do. Do you not buy those arguments or those suggestions? Yes, I don't think those uh, uh, are explanations either. You see, being a member of OPEC and a group of oil exporting countries uh, doesn't matter whether you are also an exporter of gas or a major or a minor exporter of gas. So the fact that Qatar exports a lot of gas, it is the major or largest LNG exporter, now 77 million tons per year, is going to be 110 even bigger LNG exporter, is quite separate from their operations of crude oil exports. And so it doesn't matter. And being uh, having a joint field in gas or joint field in oil, with another country, again, doesn't make any difference whether those two countries or one of them is a member of OPEC or is not a member of OPEC. As I said, OPEC is an organization of oil exporters who get together in order to defend the price of oil, which used to be, they used to be, not forget that in the 1950s and early 60s and even early 70s, the whole world was at the mercy of the big uh, companies who used to control up and down the price of oil. And these countries, the oil exporters, got together to have a say on it. And they have been successful, but of course there has been up and down story in this oil market. And now, of course, the role of those major companies has changed. They are not monopoly as such. And uh, 
So OPEC's role is different from what it used to be in 1960-70 in its early days. <clears throat> Go ahead. But, but does OPEC still stand just as strong without Qatar? Yes. You see, the OPEC's oil production is about 32 or 30, uh, million barrels per day. Qatar's oil production is about 600-650,000. So these two numbers are as to the volume of, of oil production between the total organization and of OPEC shows that Volume-wise, is not that significant. But OPEC is an organization of volunteers, and all members are equal. They get together and they talk and to discuss. And uh, they really are non-political. It's a non-political organization, and the ministers getting together, which, of course, is preceded by their experts and deputies a week or two before or weeks before analyzing the market, they look at the final results and discuss what is good for them. It's a group of business. <laughs> the ministers act as, as a business, group of business people trying to see what is the uh, status of the oil market, the global economy, demand for oil, and the forecast in the next six months or so, how the world is changing economically, how the supply of oil from around the world, outside of it, like the shale oil from the United States itself, which is a major player. In fact, it has uh, started in the last uh, five, ten years. Amazingly, its production has increased. How is that comparing, uh, competing with OPEC or what should OPEC do in, in, in face of that, and so on and so forth. So they get yeah. together and they try to come up with the best strategy, long term, but usually it is a short term, which makes the news with the press, because the next six months, what OPEC should do, and therefore they decrease or increase supply in order to make the world supply demand balance and avoid big fluctuations in the price of oil. Well, speaking of the U.S. and of business interests, you would think that they would be something President Donald Trump would have some understanding of. What do you make of the pressure he's been trying to put on OPEC, especially with um, a lot of rumors and comments swirling around the U.S.-Saudi Arabia relationship? Uh, well, those, of course, are political uh, points that have made really headline news, and everybody has heard of this murder, really sort of unpleasant case of a reporter in Istanbul, the uh, Saudi consulate, and the reactions of the world and comments by Mr. Pr- uh, Trump, President Trump, and so on. I wouldn't go into it, but I don't think... Well, uh, so, okay, you are right that uh, President Trump might like to say, as the press are saying, that, okay, if you listen to me, to my proposal for oil, then I will uh, be less empathetic and try to get the prince passed by or something, as crudely said as such, yes, it might be. But I don't really believe it is as simple as that. Maybe, you see, we shouldn't forget that when the price of oil fell in the second half of 2008 to about $30 a barrel, the uh, United States was keen and, in fact, lobbying OPEC to do something about it, to get the price up. In the days of President Clinton, also when the price of oil came down, the United States uh, Secretary of Energy, if I remember, Mr. Bill Richardson, he actually quite openly uh, traveled around to OPEC countries and lobbied them, asking them to get the price up. You see, the shale oil producers in the United States would uh, we will not be able to operate commercially if the price is uh, let's say $40 or less. So the price has to be higher. But as to what is the break-even price for shale oil producers in the United States, 
and what is a reasonable price for producers and consumers in the world, of course, is a debatable issue. But I think the United States wouldn't like the price of oil to go less than uh, $50 a barrel or uh, and so on, because there's a big uh, major oil lobby. Now, President uh, Trump's uh, uh, campaign has been, and also his uh, rhetoric, that he is not going to, is not affected by the corporations in the United States, that is by oil companies and so on. He's looking more thinking of the consumers, and so may want the price to come too far down. But if the price was too far down, there would be unemployment and crisis. Exactly right. You know, all the oil-producing regions of the United States anyway. So it is not a simple yes and no and the why yes or two, the reasons the whole relation between United States, OPEC, and Saudi Arabia is complicated. There are so many facets involved in this. Dr. Takin, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Let's also bring in Justin McQueen, market analyst at dailyfx.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. And did you expect this to go ahead? I mean, it did seem some analysts were wondering after the pressure that President Trump was putting on OPEC not to go ahead and cut supply. Yeah, I think um, given the fact that we did see quite a sizable fall in oil prices, roughly around about 30% that we did see in Brent prices, I think, although, yes, uh, Trump did provide a bit of pressure in terms of saying, you know, the world doesn't need to see any higher prices, but I think... OPEC and non-OPEC members didn't really have much choice other than to provide a cut in order to somewhat stabilise oil prices. Otherwise, we could have seen a further fall in prices, and that would have ultimately taken a bit more of a hit for some of the major oil producers. So again, heading into the meeting, I feel that OPEC and non-OPEC had to come to some sort of agreement. This figure of 1.2 million barrels a day that's being reduced, I mean, that sounds like a huge number, but in, in a grand scheme of things... Can you put that in perspective? Well, I think uh, heading into the meeting, it had been touted between around about 500 and 1.5 million barrels per day. That was roughly around about the top estimate. And I think the day before on the Thursday, what we saw was, I think OPEC pretty much engineered sort of expectations pretty well on the basis that the market had somewhat expected roughly around about 1.2 million. However, we saw the likes of Saudi Arabia sort of talking up the potential of a no-deal um, sort of uh, risk and as such we did see oil prices actually fall and then as we did head towards friday and what we saw was an agreement of a r- roughly around about 1.2 million and as such given the fact that that was the figure and markets had been sort of pricing themselves for potentially more of a lower figure of say 1 million or a potential of a no deal we actually did see oil prices rise some about five six percent um but i think on the grand scheme of things i think it's probably just short of what the market actually needs to sort of uh, balance the market I think what we've seen from the likes of the uh, IEA reports, we've seen potentially over the second, over the first half of 2019, roughly around about 2 million barrels per day oversupplied. So that would leave a bit of a shortfall of around about 800,000 barrels per day. So although it might have been better than what was expected ultimately, I think it's still short of what the, uh, the market actually needs to be balanced. What will this do for global markets and, and economic pressures in the medium term, will it will it now just have been factored in already, or, or do you see the the effect continuing at least for the coming days? I think um, for oil prices, I think it's uh, it's good news. I think it'll provide a little bit of stability uh, to sort of suggest that OPEC and non OPEC members are willing to sort of support oil prices. Um, but I think ultimately we're going to be seeing potentially some increased uh, sort of talk from President Trump in order to sort of talk down oil prices. 
Again, when we've seen oil prices at roughly around about four-year highs only about two months ago, and I think that did have an impact on gas prices as well in the U.S., and as such, that doesn't really look good for President Trump, who's provided a massive tax overhaul and ultimately wants to sort of give more money to the average consumer when you've seen oil prices and gas prices at around four-year highs, and that somewhat takes that away. So if oil prices start to, you know, see a fair bit of upside, then definitely we could see President Trump starting to sort of talk down oil prices again. But also at the same time, on the legal side of things with the uh, U.S., we've seen this uh, NOPEC bill, uh, which ultimately means that the U.S., if it is passed by President Trump, it is also passed in the House and the Senate. And what that can do is potentially allow for the U.S. to sue um, foreign oil producers in terms of manipulating oil prices. So that might get a bit more increased uh, or attention over the next couple of weeks or so. When President Trump does suggest, though, that the world does not want to see or need higher oil prices, is he really uh, appealing to a sort of popular or populist stance uh, for consumers who are the ones who have to go and fill up their cars? Yeah, I think ultimately, again, uh, as previously, you know, he did a massive tax overhaul. You know, he's tried to bring these sort of promises in terms of helping the average person, providing a bit more money for them to you know, sort of stimulate that growth in the economy. And ultimately, when you see an oil prices at around about uh, four year highs, and that's not really sort of economical for you know, many people in the US. And particularly that did come ahead of, you know, the sort of time around driving season where we do see a lot of consumers start filling up their cars for the long drive throughout the summer. We did see oil prices, you know, around about $80, $85. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, he said we want oil prices a lot lower and ultimately that does help the average consumer. And again, you know, when it does come towards the, um, the sort of uh, the year ahead just before the election, then, you know, that's going to be filtering into the campaign as well uh, as it gets underway for that. It does raise the intriguing question of what President Trump will do from here. He's uh, been tweeting a lot since that comment four or five days ago, but not about oil. Uh, do, you, do you think that uh, we can expect a political backlash from the US? And I, I know that might be going slightly off your expertise, but coming back onto your expertise, do you, do you think that's potentially going to be a major area of focus for investors? I think to a certain degree, it probably depends on how far prices do tend to uh, do, do move higher because, you know, given the fact that they have done this cut now, OPEC and non-OPEC, if we see oil prices continue to surge higher, we see Brent back towards $70, then definitely we could start to see increased uh, sort of political talk around oil prices and gas prices and we could see that pressure come back onto OPEC and non-OPEC members for cutting production. Um, so, yeah, again, it's something whether we do see that continued upside in oil prices, but at the same time, with oil prices, we have seen a bit of a hit in regards to the sort of increased uh, global trade wars as well. So, um, again, if, it, if we do see continued upside in oil prices, then that is definitely something that will be sort of increasingly likely to come into rhetoric from uh, President Trump. Justin McQueen, market analyst at DailyFX.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. And before that, we heard from Dr. Manocher Takin, London-based independent global oil and energy consultant who uh, also offered that extra expertise of having previously worked at the OPEC secretariat in Vienna was um, pretty defensive on the question of OPEC's actions actually uh, and and didn't like the use of the word cartel as a description at all. Um, Powder shot 1013 for 51 per message if you'd like to get involved and weigh in on this. To me the most interesting question is perhaps not only how it's going to affect us at the gas pumps 
which vary considerably across this country, it must be said, even across the city of Seoul. Uh, but also, the President Trump fact is very intriguing, with so much to think about, um, on the Saudi Arabia front especially. We'll continue this morning after BBC World News.